Welcome to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc., leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. again for our second episode here on our exploration of the emerald triangle here in the esoteric americas notice the s at the end of america because uh, we have some listeners all the way down there in chile shout out to our listeners in chile i found out about that recently so who knows, maybe we'll have to uh, brush up on our Española pretty soon and, and do a uh, South America, Esoteric America. But uh, today we're focusing on the North, NorCal to be specific. Uh, we, we've talked about this area once before and uh, yeah, I'm excited to get back into it. Um, Roman, of course, has spent some time in this area, so he's got the home court advantage. Uh, Chad, how are you doing today, brother? We both had to sort of weather the storm uh, waiting for Roman to to come uh, onto the stream here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing good. Good to be here with y'all. And speaking of weathering the storm, we're going to talk about some storms in NorCal today. Mm. So, just looking forward for round two of NorCal. Emerald Triangle, baby. It's nice we're all kind of um, experiencing different weather weather patterns. Yeah, like you've got snow up there. Right in Michigan, Chad. Yeah, snow. Uh, yeah, we got we just got like a foot a foot and a half of snow a couple of days ago. Wow, that's I was wild. Shoveling for two days straight. Yeah. <laughs> Did you make any snowmen or like snowball fights stuff like that? <laughs> both of those. Yeah, both of those. <laughs> that's fun. Right on. Seven year old son, so we always be making snowmen. <laughs> right on. Very cool. Well. We uh, we don't have much snow in California except if you can get to it and you know up on the mountain tops there. It rained today here in yeah. Connecticut. We got a we're 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 already in the spring. It feels like now, but uh, yeah. So like I said, Roman, you got home court advantage. I'm gonna give you the option this episode um to decide who goes first with their presentation because i know we all all four of us have a little something prepared right a little bit yeah cool no i can go let me go let me go let me go i'll get this off uh get this off my chest here no what about chad chad always goes last why don't we get chad going first chad do you want to go it's up to you man you're the boss today oh okay i'm the boss make a decision homie all right, you know what? I'm gonna make an executive decision. <laughs> well, I can go with like 
my little bit okay. that I have. There we go, Tara. Why don't you, why don't you get the ball rolling here, bud? Because, um, okay. Maybe this little... <clears throat> okay, so... Identified by Peter Shampoo, one of the three biomes in the western United States is the circle with 19 points, otherwise known as the Earth Star and is centered around the Grand Tetons. The Grand Tetons, <coughs> meaning big breast, was named by the French trappers who along with Native American peoples and mountain men recognized it as the center of the North American West. Yearly, yearly rendezvous were held there by French voyagers despite their steep pinnacles, which are a typical feature of geomorphological structures in the West. The 1,200-mile-wide circle surrounding it is marked by 19 points. Mount Shasta is number 15, which sits on the western boundary of the North American tectonic plate and links to the, nor uh, to the core geometry of the Massachusetts Hills in New England. Um. <sighs> the New England region represents the spindle around which American culture revolves and the West increases culture's dynamic power with its abundance of natural resources, mystical landscape, and technology. The other day, I was listening to Infinite Waters interview with 19 Keys, and the topic of conversation was the new earth and ancient wisdom and wealth building. And that, um, and then I looked up what 19 means, and it represents starting and finishing, which is also symbolic of the circle. And, um, and the moon. Um, it's a lunar number. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and also, <laughs> what was I going to say? <laughs> um, 19 keys. Oh, and then, okay, so then that also would tie into Lemuria. Um, with the ancient wisdom and wisdom being also connected to the moon. Um, and... And then, and wealth building too was, I found some stuff about the 
like the gold, we know the gold rush is out there and everything. Um, and there's this, well, I pulled up, I pulled up a few things. I didn't put it together though, but the mother load of, um, gold and quartz deposits are out there in that area surrounding Mount Shasta. Um, so, yeah. And, um, That's what I have for now. All right. Wonderful. So just to ask a, a clarifying question, you're talking about the the Grand Teton wheel and how the Emerald Triangle is connected to that? Yeah. Like, like geographically, the, the wheel goes through the Emerald Triangle area? Yeah. Okay. Like Mount Shasta. That's awesome. Right on. I had no clue Grand Tetons meant big breasts. <laughs> That's totally new to me. It's I French. thought that was funny. They do look like they do look like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the point you brought up about the wealth building, the wealth building, that's a huge you know, huge deal with everything we're going to talk about. That's what California was about, was the wealth building. Even before the gold rush, it was all about the natural resources. For yes. The trees. Okay. Whatever they could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that, that's a great point you brought up. Milk and the breastuses of Mother Earth. Milk and the breastuses, sand the land. Yep, absolutely. Right on. All right. Well, then, Chad, you, you want to follow that up? Yeah, I can follow that up. That'd be a good segue. We're talking about the resources. Share my screen here. Okay, tell me when you guys see it. <laughs> Beautiful. Got it. All right. So we're going to talk about exactly what Tara brought up, kind of the wealth building. And we're going to start off a little before the gold rush, actually two years before the gold rush. And this was the time of the wagon trains heading out for the West. And at this point, it was more of a, what they believed they had, what was called manifest destiny. And the white Europeans felt they were, deserving of this land to the West. It was destined to them by God, supposedly. So a lot of them packed up all their belongings in these wagon trains and headed out West. So we're going to talk about one in particular wagon train today, and it's called the Donner Train or the Donner and Reed Party. And this wagon train started in Independence, Missouri, and their final destination was to be Sutter's Fort in Northern California. Of course. And all was pretty normal with this wagon train. There was about uh, 
I want to say like 200 wagons to start with. Uh, question and only 30 quick. of these wagons belong to the Donners and the Reed family. Yeah, is, for sure, man. Is this, uh, they were going to Sutter's Fort before 1849? Or is this after the gold was struck? Exactly. No, this is before, Romy. Oh. Good, good catch, though. Good catch. This was, yeah, Sutter's Fort even before, because we'll get to that when we get a couple years ahead. Sutter's Fort where gold was first struck that caused the gold rush. But before that, Sutter's Fort was basically ground zero for the westward expansion. He had a giant lumber mill going on, and it was when they were building an extension to this lumber mill, they just discovered gold. So Sutter's Fort, even before that, was ground zero for this westward expansion. So that's a great catch, Romy. So we're talking about the Reed Party and the Donner Party today, two in particular families. Now, the Reed Party and the Reed family, we're looking at a picture here, were super wealthy. And they actually had what was called the Palace Wagon. If you can see this wagon in the picture, it's two stories tall. And, it, you know, it had chairs and com creature comforts that everybody else's wagons didn't have. It took eight axes to pull this one wagon. So this was the elite couple of the bunch. Wow. And people kind of, because of that reason, weren't that fond of them. You know, these, these were the elites and everybody else was walking next to their wagons. Well, these guys had eight oxen pulling their wagons while they were chilled out inside. So that's the Reed family. And the Donners, Donners had a big family, but they were poor. Now I'm going to show you the route, because the whole route of this trip is what will cause some turmoil momentarily here. And by the way, this route followed the 40th parallel across the country. It would go between the 39th and the 41st. And right here at the Ruby Mountains, where you get into the Humboldt County, it's an, on the 40th, exactly. And the Donners and the Reeds, they followed this whole wagon train all the way until they got to Fort Bridger here. And normally, they would follow the Oregon Trail all the way to Fort Sutter's Fort. Well, at this point, there was a guy called Hastings who said he knew of a cutoff that could save a few days. So they decided they were going to take Hastings' cutoff. And that's where the mistake took place. And you can actually see here where most of the wagons were going to the right following the Oregon Trail. They decided to take the Hastings cutoff. Supposedly, Hastings said it was shorter. And Hastings was the author, an explorer, but Hastings never even had taken this route at this point. So, but these people trusted him and they followed Hastings' new shortcut route, which ended up leading them into Utah's Salt Lake. And during the day, their wagons would get stuck in the salt. And it ended up costing them like an extra week and lots of foods, lots of provisions. And by the time they got through it, they were cursing Hastings, you know. But at that point, they had to finish out the shortcut to catch up to the rest of the trail. So they finally get through the Salt Lakes and the top of Nevada. They get to the Sierra Nevadas. And they're running a little behind as far as the seasons and it's getting to become winter and they should have been past the Sierra Nevadas at this point with their wagon train, they start having issues. Their trains start getting stuck in the snow and the mud. They start losing horses. They're starting to run short on provisions. And now they're in the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California and it starts to snow one night. 
And we know how rough the snow can get in the Sierra Nevadas. Just the last month, we've seen on the news consistently, you know, 15, 20 foot of snow. And this was the same, same scenario right here. It's just started snowing and never stopped for weeks and months on end. And the Donners and the Reeds got stuck at a place called Truckee Lake. Now it's called Donner Lake, but it used to be called Truckee Lake in the mountains of the Sierra Nevadas. And they ran out of provisions. They're running low. Some of their wagons had broken wheels. They ended up having to build little cabins along this lake. And they they picked a couple people, I think it was seven, eight people, to go ahead to try to make it to Sutter's Fort because the whole crew wasn't going to make it. So this is called the Fort Lawn Hope, and they built some snowshoes and stuff, and they sent them forward hoping they would make it. Wow. But the guys from the Fort Lawn Hope trying, trying to make it all the way to Sutter's Fort, they didn't take enough provisions. And at one point, they decided they weren't going to make it. Maybe they should sacrifice somebody. It's the only way they're going to make it. So they actually drew straws and picked names to decide who they were going to sacrifice as food. And one of the guys got chosen. And long story short, after he was chosen, none of them had the heart to do it. They couldn't do it. They're like, okay, we can't do it. We're just going to keep on going until somebody dies. And eventually somebody did. And they had to eat the meat of their fallen comrade to survive, and they did. And there was two Native Americans with them, two Native American guides who seen what just happened, these white guys eating each other, and decided that, you know, if they would do that to each other, it might not be, maybe we should get out of here. And the two Native Americans in the middle of the night took off, and they ended up not making it either. They froze to death, and later, later on down the road, they were found, and they too had been cannibalized. Whoa. Eventually, eventually some Mr. Reed happened to be one of the, the rich guy happened to be one of the guys who went along in the Fort Long Hope. And eventually they got to Sutter's Fort and they put together some rescue parties. But this is at this point, like a month later, month and a half later. And, you know, the rescue parties eventually made it back to the, the campsite on Truckee Lake. And at that point, several of the families had been forced in to eating each other, eating each other's families. And they, they made packs. Here, here's some of the actual letter, letters and journals that they kept talking about it. But they made packs so they wouldn't eat their own family. They would try to label the meat so they would eat the other Oh my Other God. families not be eating their own fathers, their own mothers, their own children. I mean, just just uh, awful. Sad. But it's, it's a story of survival, you know. <sighs> Sad, a story of survival. And, you know, that's kind of the end of the story. The Donners, 90% of the Donners didn't make it. Ended up either dying or being sacrificed or cannibalized. The Reed Party... Almost the whole Reed party did make it for whatever reason. The, the elite family, the entire party made it. Now, I don't know what this has to do with anything, but when I was going through the pictures of these survivors, there's something about their eyes. And in the journals, the journals I would say when they found these guys, 
they appeared demon like. Oh. Most you know, most likely they were starving, and you know, but you go through some of these pictures of these people and their eyes after they were discovered, and it's just creepy. I mean, look look at the that are they cat eyes, reptilian yeah, eyes. I don't know. They look like but reptiles. They went through some. They went through some stuff. You know. Was it the Donner party or yeah, the Roman. dinner party? Yeah. The Donner party was the dinner oh. party. <laughs> yeah, and the, the oh, Reed party God. went on. I, I was going to say James Reed went on to become a, like a governor. And, you know, he went on. And by the way, I forgot this part, a little fun fact. James Reed was close, close friends with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was actually supposed to come along on this journey. Wow. Abe's wife wouldn't let him go. Yep. So that would have really changed history if Honest Abe was on this trip, you know. <laughs> wow. But so that, that's just skimming the skimming this story, but it's a story of trials and tribulations and survival, you know, and they were just trying to get to Sutter's Fort so they could cut them down, get the land they thought was owed to them and cut them down some beautiful redwood trees. So I know Romy already talked about the redwoods, but I think we all love trees here. Mark, I've oh, heard yeah. Mark say he's a tree hugger. I'm a, I love trees. I've, I've hugged many trees. Romy, you hugged a redwood before? Oh, buddy. I know you have. I know you have. <laughs> all right. So I just want to show a few more things about the redwoods because I love the redwoods. And Romy probably went over a couple of these things already, but I just want to show some images of these trees. I love them, too. And then too. the guys who came to cut the trees down. Ooh. Uh, so They're huge. So it's agreed all four of us are tree lovers here. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> we're looking at the giant sequoias. The giant sequoias are a little more inland, but the giant redwoods are right along the coast, right all the way through the Emerald Triangle. And from a seed no bigger than a tomato, a redwood can grow up to 367 feet, 22 feet wide at its base. I just wanted to show these pictures because unless you see a person standing next to these trees, you have no concept of how big they are. I mean, unless you've, unless you've been there, it's you got to have people to actually comprehend how big these trees are. And they can reach, you know, 2,000 years old. And one yeah. of the super Giant. important reasons that the redwoods can get as big as they can is because of the, yeah, huge, huge. You can drive your cars through some of them. They're so big. Yeah, I remember and and I, I lived out in Washington for a little bit. We went to visit um, what the rainforest there and stood next to them. And yeah, yeah they were huge, huge, gigantic, huge. Yeah. And, and they get that Big huge boys. because of the, the coastal fog. The roots of the trees themselves are big, but they're not big enough to grow a tree that big. So a lot of the nutrients come from what's called a foliar feeding, Romy. Just the ultimate foliar feeding coming from the ocean. That salt water just gets soaked up through their bark and through their limbs. So that's what allows them to get so gigantic. Here's a couple of pictures. These are the plank houses. These are the houses that the Native Americans 
used to make that lived in this area. They didn't make teepees. They used the fallen branches from the redwoods to make these plank houses. And just like they believed the trees were, you know, living entities, they believed these plank houses also had a soul of their own. And then the white man arrived. The reeds, the donners, the whole crew showed up and started cutting these beautiful trees down. Pretty Here on these maps, you can see the virgin forest around the country in 1620. By 1850, that's when we're talking about right now, 1847 to 1849-ish, you see they start to cut them down. By 1920, a lot of them are gone. Today, there's only a few left. So here's some pictures of these lumberjacks in the 1800s that came to take these trees down. A lot of them is trophies. I mean, they used some of the wood, but at this point, these guys really considered it a trophy to come and take one of these monster trees kind of like today people go big game hunting this was you know the new thing to do is to take down a redwood you look close how big this tree is. you can see horses all lined up here on the top of the tree there's got to be 30 guys sitting on it it's gigantic and initially they would haul them out did with they, oxen tie 15 oxen to pull one piece out yeah Terry. did they make boats out of the trees or just houses? Honestly, I have not seen any boats yet. I would, I mean, it would make sense that they would make boats. I've read how they used these trees to build large parts of San Francisco. Huh. And these trees, because the bark is so thick, are very fire resistant. So supposedly, when they had the great fire in San Francisco, the only buildings that didn't burn down were the ones that were built from the wet redwoods trees. Now, I don't know how true that is, but that's not one of the things they say. Yeah. Interesting. So here you can see once once they got the trains, like for to take one tree out, it would take a whole train. So that, that was part that was the industry before they hit gold. That that was the first natural resource that they came to get. I like this picture when the forests are gone, we're all history. Like Romy pointed out, they were all headed out to Sutter's Mill. This is just north of Sacramento, but this was ground zero, you know, before the gold rush. And as Sutter was upgrading his mill, that's when they actually, a guy by James Marshall, struck gold. That caused the gold rush. See, fueled by greed and fear, the Anglo settlers who flocked to California declared war on the native Californians who had come before them. But 49ers weren't their first white people to oppress or enslave the Native Americans in California. The very land on which Marshall spotted the gold was part of a vast empire built on the slave labor of native peoples. So this guy, Sutter, we were talking about a couple weeks ago how a lot of these Native Americans were enslaved, and supposedly they said that was a safe place for them. And this was where they were talking about. This Sutter guy had hundreds of enslaved Native Americans who worked for him. Now, wow. just briefly, the tree back to the trees, because that's where this all started. We got about 3% of the redwoods left today. This is kind of your common site if you take the aerial view of Northern California, just clear-cut mountaintops. And 
Well, there's one person I just want to point out because there are people who have tried to do something about this and it's hard to do much about it because, you know, these are gigantic lumber companies with contracts on land. But, you know, we're down to one to three percent of them left. In 1997, there was a girl named Julia Butterfly who, Julia Hill Butterfly, who decided she was going to take it upon herself to save one of the last redwoods in this particular area. This company had cut down all the redwoods in this area, and there's a few left. And in the middle of the night, her and a couple other people hiked out there in the, under the full moon, propelled themselves to the top of this redwoods tree, built a platform, and she didn't come down for another 738 days. And she didn't come down until they got the lumber company to actually sign a contract that they would not cut this tree down. That's respect. And she was up there with document. That's, that's beyond respect. I can't even quite comprehend that kind of respect, but I got oh, enough shame. respect. We had to at least tell the story. We're talking about tree huggers. I mean, she hugged a tree for 738 days and saved its life. That's love. And she was up there during what was called El Nino. And this was a crazy period of storms. And it was documented. She was up in the top of this tree with 80 to 90 mile an hour winds. Just I, 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 kind of hard to comprehend that. I actually listened to an interview with her this morning. Just I knew he was doing this. And one of the things she said about living in this tree one of the life lessons she learned is that you have to be one with the storm and move with the storm. St- storms will come through your life, and you just have to be able to move with the storm. I thought that was a pretty cool life lesson. Mm. And Luna, by the way, the tree's name is Luna because they found it, or they climbed it in the light of the moon. They named it Luna. happens also to sit wow. right on the 40th parallel. thought that, that was pretty coincidental. Yeah. So... Wow. That's what I got. A little dark to start with and I think a little light to end with. Yeah. Like the cocoon and the butterfly. The cocoon and the butterfly. Bam. Exactly. Right on. Right on. All right. Well, why don't That's beautiful. Why don't you take it away, Roman, and then I'll close this out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention on that. I, I completely forgot her name. I had l- heard that story when I uh, was taking some physical geography classes in college and I heard that story and it just, it blew my mind. Uh, Cause I, you know, like the, the descriptions that they're giving about the 80 mile an hour winds and she's sleeping in this platform and she's literally just laying down like next to the the tree and the tree is swaying and i i've seen trees fall in the forest i've been you know like they're granted they were like aspen trees they were very thin technically you know comparatively and like they just snap and they hit the ground and they just make a boom tearing everything down and it's just like she you know was just so ready to to just go if the tree were to go or to you know to fling off and that's just like you know i we just need to 
do more stuff like that, you know, like, cause it, it goes to show, I mean, granted it was just one lumber corporation that, you know, said back down, but you know, if we were to, to stand up on a real level and not back down, we, we could make some huge changes and shifts on a bigger political level and like bigger corporate level, you know, but like, that's just one person that did that, you know, out of the, out of the billions that are here. And it's just like, I have so much respect for her. So thank you for sharing that story, man. It's a, it's a great one. Wow. Yeah, for sure. And if anybody wants to dig deeper into it, there's a book called the legacy of Luna by her Julia Butterfly Hill. I think that's just so fascinating that it all took place too on the 40th parallel from the Donner party crossing to the, the tree itself. Yeah. Wow. We ought to, we, it's about time we get Mike Wan That's, on the show. Yeah, I was just say, it was kind of it was a, um, a creation, destruction, integration follows the themes that Mike laid out for the 40th parallel mm. too. What we just yeah. mm. but, well, there you go. Um, They're all there mm. for this one. That that story that everything Chad laid out, you know, the rebirth yeah. and. The, that's yep. that's interesting. Yeah, that Donner story. I I ran into that one while looking up. I was trying to do some uh, some research into Jeffrey Dahmer because he was getting popular again for some reason. You know, like they had like multiple shows about this guy, and uh, yeah. was like looking up uh, cannibalism and trying to make some interesting connections. And I found that story and I was just like, Oh, and I looked where it was. I was like, Oh, that's just right down the road. But it's interesting that they would change. Uh, I mean, were they, were they venerated? Were they like, obviously they went into politics afterwards. It seems like they were almost like congratulated for making it through and like, Hey, pat on the back guys, you guys survived, you know, there. <laughs> so what, what was up with that? No, kind of the opposite. The, the elite guy, Reed, he was, but a lot of the other people was kind of the opposite. Everybody thought they basically went crazy and they were nuts for doing it. And so a lot of them actually ended up trying to deny that it ever happened, but they found their journals. So, you know, there wasn't too much denying. There's actually a museum out there now with that has their, their journals in it. I was talking to this about my little brother. He lives out in Mammoth in the Sierras. And he's like, yeah, dude, I hiked the whole trail they went down. He went into the museum. He's actually read the journals. And he's like, to read the journals, it'll take you a step back in time. So if anyone's out that way, there is a museum where you can literally go in there and read their journals and step back in time yourself. Oh, sweet. I'm down. Some, Some museums are cooler than others, I'll tell you that in quite a few museums and some of them I'm like eh. other ones I'm like oh and other ones I'm like eh. other ones I'm like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and other ones I'm like eh. <laughs> <laughs> anyways um terrific you guys are amazing uh I don't I don't even know where like this was such a random series of uh rabbit holes I got into. I feel like I, I wanted to cover more. I wanted to cover more, but I, I, I ended up trying to read a lot of finite, uh, texts in just a, in, in few days about, about a certain character that we're going to getting into. So, um, let me know if you guys got any questions or, uh, if this is, this is, uh, 
This is where we're going. Anyways, Oakland, here we are. Look at that. You got wagons, you got horses, the land of Oak. That's uh, for people that don't know, Oakland is basically San Francisco. Uh, it's the Bay. I mean, they're, they're sister cities, they're sister towns. For some reason, there is a, um, uh, there's two airports. There's one major airport in Oakland, one major airport in San Francisco, but they're 20 minutes away from each other. Um, so it's whenever, when you're talking about esoteric San Francisco, uh, which we have been a little bit on the last episode and which we will do again, um, Oakland is a part of that. Uh, you know, it's actually where a lot more, uh, like money gets funneled and it's, it's interesting. But anyways, this is an old picture of Oakland, 1852, an old postcard. Um, one of the main tribes of California that were in this area, uh, were the Ohlone tribe. And here's an old painted depiction of it. I, I thought this was interesting. Uh, cause this guy is just like clearly a white dude, like right in the middle, but his feet are not. And I was wondering if, his body painted or are his feet painted? Good catch, Romy. I mean, he's clearly kind of like hairy. I don't know. I think it's his body. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, it would make sense because yeah. the other guy's got body paint on too, so it could be his body. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Still weird. Super weird. Yeah. <laughs> Bizarre. Um, for sure. Because we talked about ancient China or Chinese uh, coming through here, you know, in the in the episode uh, we did. I'm not sure if we posted the, the episode we did with Casey Starfort yet, but anyways, the first episode we did talked about the potential of, of Kate, uh, of Casey, of China coming through and having long contact with the indigenous people of coastal America, uh, long before then, uh, then we've been told and that Marco Polo was, uh, a part of some of those escapades and reporting back to the Pope. Um, and so through that, we were talking about the East mystery walls of Berkeley. Um, and Berkeley is just kind of, it's a part of San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. You got Berkeley College there. It's I a little just, bit more ritzy area. Um, pretty fun. Lots of good food. The Dream uh, Institute is there. The what? The Dream Institute. Oh, yeah, a lot of a lot of heady stuff going on in this area. I mean, San Francisco is the home of the head, right? Like you had the Grateful Dead coming out of here. Grateful Dead is home is up in Laytonville, California, uh, where they still hold like festivals and parties in Laytonville, and that's just, all it is is cannabis, and it's like that's where the dead um, holds a lot of their homesteads uh, for obvious reasons. So, yeah, very heady stuff all around here in the Bay in Northern California here. Uh, lots of hippies, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, so just north of, of the East Bay Mystery Walls, we find another megalithic wall structure that there was a lot of really great geologists that went out and have done many surveys. They line them up to different celestial patterns and stuff. So um, I was really excited when I found that and we're going to get into that. So a group of ancient megalithic structures have been identified at Point Reyes, California. Uh, 
Stone mounds and other structures there have been determined to have been made by prehistoric humans. Substantial geologic and cultural evidence indicates that they are not natural rock outcrops. Dr. Jane's protection and preservation of these structures are essential, as well as non-invasive testing to further describe them. There is also an abundant evidence that these megaliths are part of an immense and sacred mortuary complex with spirit paths and ceremony sites for the dead, Mount St. Helena, where the path begins, the path of the dead begins. The Farallon Islands, also part of the mortuary complex, are considered by multiple tribes, including the Coast Miwok and Ohlone tribe, to be the islands of the dead to end their journey. Conclusions are based on observations, oral traditions of Coast Miwok and other Californian Indian tribes, records of comparable California Indian cultural sites, including those of Ohlone and Shumash, and contemporary archaeological research. Dr. Makes Mark, a scholar of Native American religions, indicated this complex could be extraordinarily old. It is plausible that the Point Reyes Farallon Islands complex could be among the most ancient traditional cultural places in North America, and that megalith still remains or the megalith remains will continue to be found at the Farallones and the Continental Shelf. <clears throat> As there are many old stone walls crossing the hills of East Tamales Bay, it seems reasonable that historians might conclude that the stone line crossing Tamales Point are the remains of another wall built by ranchers in the 19th century. However, no written historical documents have been found to confirm this conclusion, in part because of the archaeological surveys have not found any cultural artifacts like shell middens, pottery shards, or debitage near the lines that suggest an earlier origin or different function, the historical origin hypothesis is generally accepted, as was the case for the East Bay Mystery Walls as well. However, the lines are not alone. There are several soil and rock mounds scattered along the crest of Tamales Point near the lines. Some of these mounds may be natural emotions, erosional remnants, but some are clearly not. Rock outcrops on grass covered slopes in the area are typically exposed by downslope creep of the soil and appear as relatively flat features of free of debris because loose material continuously will make its way down the slope to drainage bottoms. In contrast, mounds on the slope near the stone line seem to have been built up and resist natural erosional process. This is particularly clear that the two platform mounds in figure 6, which I'll show you here, um, <clears throat> at the site which are composed of a soil core and, sweep fest uh, and steep west-facing slopes that are mantled by rock to prevent erosion. In addition, something or someone has planed off the top of these mounds. These flat surfaces provide an excellent platform for viewing miles of the coastline. Careful examination of the mound where Goliath stands suggests that it was modified by placing a mass of stone on a semicircle ring of smaller stones which sit in a thin layer of soil. The stratigraphy suggests that at least this part of the mound is artificial. The proximity of Goliath's stone line 
Line one further supports this inference. Formal description of the stone lines have not been available until recently. The description includes size metrics of the individual stones, and some offer evidence that the stone lines were never walls. While most of the stones were relatively small and flat, there are 12 massive stones that are located at very irregular intervals along the lines. These larger stones are estimated to weigh several thousand pounds and seem unnecessarily large for a stone wall. In addition, only four stones were clearly placed in an upright position rather than laid fat, flat, flat and are two large gaps in the stone line one and large gap between the lines cannot be readily explained. Um, something else they've done by with aerial footage is, uh, is line it up to uh, constellations showing that it was part of a, a bigger... Um, bigger spiritual purpose than just a farmer's stone wall. A larger view at the Tamales Point study area show all of the mounds. Curiously, they appear to be laid out to resemble the night sky near Polaris, the North Star. Each is marked by a star symbol. A comparison to star maps suggests that the mounds represent stars that make up the constellation we call Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia. All the mounds except one seem to coincide with celestial features in this part of the sky, except for one. The Miami team calls it the Soul Mound. We are not saying that these mounds were placed to mimic Cassiopeia, but the mound distribution looks like it mimics this part of the sky. Not surprisingly, this part of the sky is over Tamales Point every night of the year. The freaky thing is if you look at Cassiopeia as it would appear from our nearest neighbor Alpha Centauri, then the soul mound fits quite well. The whole pattern also seems to fit with the North Star and see how the stars appear to move around it. The red circle marks the track in the sky that Cassiopeia follows around Polaris. This track intersects some very important rock features at the side. A new hypothesis for the origin and function of the stone lines known as the spirit of jumping off rocks. Tamales Point, Marin County, California. <clears throat> so, um, let me exit this. Yeah, so it's a big, huge structure um, it, that, that spans out. And it, it's not the same as the East Bay Mystery Walls. So just... Just, you know, miles away, we have another huge stone wall crossing that was already dated back to a prehistoric time. And I'm just saying, you know, there's so much lore of giants and Lemurian homelands and Tellos and, you know, this the, in, the inside home of Lemuria, you know, inside of Shasta that, you know, we find a lot of these really uh, cool megalithic sites, you know, here and all this underground lore, I'm starting to think that, you know, this is an old, old Lemurian remnants. It would be really interesting to go uh, further out and do underwater studies deeper into the Pacific, but that's a lot of money, time and resources. And I'm not sure that the universities are ready to pay for that yet. Um, but I will share with you guys some more pictures. So here's some of the really big stone walls or uh, stones along the line there. I got some like holes drilled out in the bottom. Drilled out or, or eroded out? Oh, crazy. 
uh, or oh, they might have been Wow, yeah, look at that. Okay, I see what you mean. I thought you were talking about the mouth there. That other yeah, stone the, below, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at that. It looks like a mouth. It does, right? Maybe even, like, you see two eyes. One of them on the left is kind of bigger, but on the right, it's, like, at a different angle. It's almost like two eyes and a mouth. Here's some diagrams of the walls themselves. Just keeps going. 90 meters, 100 meters, 80 meters, 70 meters, 60 meters. You know, it spans out. There's more. Um, we went over this already. Some of the celestial features. Here's Cassiopeia as a constellation. And here we have the major lo uh, rock layouts of the, of the major big pieces so it's like the smaller Jesus oh. <laughs> hold on let me shut my window yeah so yeah. Uh, the spirit jumping off rocks is a poorly known line of stones located at the crest of the Tamales Point Pen Peninsula it is composed of two linear arrays of rectangular stones with compass bearings north 28 degrees east and north 35 degrees east. The term spirit jumping off rocks is derived from the coastal Milwaukee oral history, known from the 16th century to the coastal Milwaukee occupied Bodega Bay, the Point Reyes Peninsula along the Tamales Bay and areas to the east. Along the eastern shore of the Tamales Point Peninsula, six former Miwok sites have been identified and located below the area where the stone lines occur. However, the Miwok are not known to construct rock features and make no claim that they were the builders of the stone lines. So, you know, that's, that's a common theme too. Um, <clears throat> it's like, you know, inhabiting other rock or megalithic sites you know like the story of we didn't build this temple but we inhabited it and we find it to be a spiritual place i don't know what you guys believe about that i mean i it's like you want to give more credit you know where credit could be due but how much how much digging are they doing when they say no you know no miwoks or miwok tribe say that they built this like how, how many have they actually talked to you know i don't know it's hard to it's hard to yeah. say. Probably just yeah. Just have to rely on the little pieces of what they've left behind. I guess. Mm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Er, I mean. Oh, keep going. Um. Yeah. Just do they they find um how would they even know that the the tribes were utilizing it i mean i assume that when you know the because there there are jobs you get after you you know graduate uh, with a degree and you know studies native american studies and things that these people actually have a true compassion for history in the past and that they're actually speaking with you know, some of the elders around or they're actually have communication instead of just doing studying and book studying. 
Um, but that's yeah. out of my wheelhouse of uh, expertise. I, I, I'm interested in looking that see up to see saying. who more of these uh, actual, you know, people who get degrees and master's degrees in Native American studies and, and how they get a lot of their information. Hmm. Did they talk to probably the, the natives, right? Yeah, I would hope so, but that's not fair. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, um, now we're going to get into, now that we covered the megalist stuff, you guys can check that out, recommend it. There's some really cool websites that go a lot deeper into that. Um, but, uh, it's something similar that, you know, we have with the mound building cultures, um, that Greg little, Dr. Greg little kind of describes in his path of souls book, um, that, you know, there was a, that they, that they would go to these sacred sites with like magnetic anomalistic properties um, during certain times of the year, specifically the winter solstice is what Greg Little <clears throat> talks about. And they would have a, a, a spiritual experience. They say that the ogi is a split in the sky, you know, and your spirit goes and, and, and travels around. So it's really not that far of a stretch to think that, that this megalithic site could be something along those lines if that's what the stories are told. Um, from the indigenous people. Now we switch, we go later into more recent history and we're yeah. talking about the gold rush, right? The formation of California. <clears throat> well, significantly enough, a, uh, someone who used to be a household name in science and, and, uh, in the world was Alexander von Humboldt. And I always wondered about the, Humboldt's name. I, I just, you know, Humboldt's famous. Humboldt's a famous county. Humboldt County gets around for its, you know, cannabis stuff. But Humboldt himself was a traveler. He was a part of the founding of uh, South America or the Conquistadorian takeover, really. Um, he was a, a father of science at this point. And he actually is known for uh, discovering basically being one of the fathers of geomagnetism. He would bring, Oh, let's, so let, let's, let's halt this. I'm going to start from the top here. So Humboldt created in 1853, the County derived its name from Humboldt Bay. Okay. <laughs> Which was entered by a sea otter party in 1806, but was not rediscovered until 1849 In 1850 Douglas Ottinger and Hans Boone, entered the bay, naming it Humboldt in honor of the great naturalist and world explorer, Baron Alexander von Humboldt. Okay, Alexander von Humboldt. This guy, once I started looking into him, I'm like, oh shit, this guy got around. He was up there with, there was a book written um, called The Alchemy of Conquest that was written about Roger Bacon, Francis Bacon, and Alexander von Humboldt. And I was like, oh, he's up there with the Bacons, like very famous, uh, very famous people in Europe. Uh, Roger Bacon, you know, is, is gave credit to creating gunpowder. He's a, a master alchemist. He was known as a wizard. And you can find all that on his uh, Wikipedia page. Francis Bacon. I mean, we got Manly P. Hall writing about Francis Bacon being the bastard son of Queen Elizabeth. Right. We got a lot about Francis Bacon. Um, we're not getting into bacon stuff today, but um, 
this guy, Von Humboldt, was right up there. Um, <clears throat> so he, I started looking him up and I was like, this fucking son of this guy was there in the beginning of destroying the Aztecs and the Mayans. But there was no information on him actually being terrible and racist. He actually was about freedom and equality, as many of these Masons are, right? They're about equality of all men and all brethren are created equally, as they say. But as they're yeah. slowly taking over and discovering a new world, because the term yeah. discovering was a little bit loose as a definition back in the day, right? Discovering a new land. Damn right, has a different loose interpretation back in the day. Mm. Um, that being said, um, modern science thanks Alexander von Humboldt tremendously for his uh, worldly travels and bringing his huge library, his wealth of knowledge, his ability to write and document and um, to study uh, geomagnetism everywhere. And he brought his tools, his fancy uh, magnometers everywhere with him and they would study uh, <clears throat> the the magnetic lines. So we can thank this guy for basically founding of the ley lines. Well, it's interesting, right? Because when he was growing up, he was working in the mines. He was working in the mines in Germany. Uh, and he uh, was so good at his job and he started doing such detailed paperwork. They basically gave him like, a very high up position. So when you, we talk about the gold rush period and this Humboldt County, which is just right over here, you know, in gold, gold County, California, that we use magnetic, uh, we can use a magnometer to find gold, basically to find mines, to see where mines are laying. So he's been working with high up money for a very long time in, in Europe. In 1991 article, SRC Malin and D.R. Bearclough stated that the network that currently monitors the geomagnetic field can, with some justification, be said to owe its existence to Humboldt's efforts in organizing the simultaneous observations for the study of magnetic storms. Considering the significance today of magnetism on communications and navigation technology, this is quite a legacy. The document is a letter on terrestrial magnetism written by Humboldt to the president of the Royal Society, HRH, the Duke of Sussex in 1836. Humboldt aimed, Humboldt's aim was to secure the Royal Society's cooperation in establishing a network of magnetic observatories across the world with apparatus similar to his own. In order to obtain corresponding observations made at great distances at the same hours, Humboldt hoped that he would allow him to determine the causes of disturbances in the Earth's magnetic field that he called magnetic storms. But more than this, he was recognized to, for the need to, for collective scientific endeavor to gather a uniform data set compromised of comparable concurrent observations from different continents. So, basically, he got the Royal Society to fund building magnetic observatories all over the world so they can basically map the cosmos. His magnum opus was this work called The Cosmos. And he actually had so apparently termed the coin of cosmos. Don't completely quote me on that, but if you guys do look into Alexander von Humboldt, um, his, his five series book, 
for his legacy work after he had done, he went from Germany on a boat with all of his tools to study the magnetism in the new world. He traveled all the way from Argentina up to Northern new Spain, which is what we know now as Mexico. And he backpacked and documented it all and discovered new animals and, and drew all them beautifully, you know? So it's like a dichotomous type of character, but the homage of the mineral mine County. So before we know what we know about magnetism now, which still isn't all of everything. Um, and the technology we have now where we can literally bring a magnometer onto the bottom of a plane or a helicopter or just scan and simply find magnetic anomalies in the land and then assume that there's some sort of mineral underneath that, that thus we can extract and harvest is all part of, um, you know, basically creating society and allowing it to fruit more because we mine everything that we use, right? We wouldn't be doing any of this talking over the internet if we didn't have crystals and, and, and gold and silver and all of the minerals that we need to create a society that we live in in reality. So, um, you know, that's why Elon Musk, you know, is one of the richest yeah. people in the world and he comes from a, a mining family, right? South of African uh, mining families. Anyways, so we're going to get into humble and Freemasonry. So he was very, very much connected to Freemasons and there was lodges. Um, well, the first, the first Masonic lodge built in California was built in San Francisco, of course. Right. Of, co of course. Yeah. Um, but there's, uh, there's many, many, many Masonic oh, lodges. There's all also the, the Rosicrucian society started in the Emerald Triangle area, San Francisco. Two, I think, in 1915. Oh, wow. Or some, I didn't even something. get a chance to look into the Rosicrucians on this one. <laughs> That's, aren't the, oh, I'm, they have a I'm Rosicrucian and San Jose, but museum but temple down in San Jose, and it is lavish. Like yeah, it is. That's the that's the American that's the American uh, Rosicrucian order, which is not the only Rosicrucian, and it's not the first Rosicrucian order, but it's the first like official order of Rosicrucians in a, in America. I'm pretty sure. I mean, there were other groups. But no, no Rosicrucians ever self-identified as Rosicrucians. So, mm -hmm. uh, but anyways, okay. San Jose, not San Francisco, but you're close, yeah. Tara. You're Thank close. You. Yeah, Thank San, San Jose is probably an hour south of San Francisco. About the, well, also we have Bohemian Grove, which is in Santa Rosa, which is an hour north of San Francisco, um, and about two hours south of Humboldt. This whole area basically is loaded, right? Like, it, <laughs> because, yeah, it's just, this is was where all the money was going, right? This is where all the money, like, California is one of the richest states, you know? Like, they there's just so much. But it, it's crazy. Yet. So, the also, if you want to, you know, you can ask any uh, Rosicrucian about Francis Bacon, and he's like a god to a lot of Rosicrucians. Like he was a he was an epic, uh, an epic character. Like I've I've talked to a couple of people who have you know it's Rosicrucians now. There's still a thing. You can sign up to be a Rosicrucian now. You can. Like it's not even hard to do it anymore. But at one point, same with Freemasonry. You know, it was it was obviously the high secret high secret. Like it was 
one of the many secret societies that existed. So I've talked to a, one guy specifically and we nerded out on Francis Bacon for a while. So it's like, it's interesting that Humboldt and Bacon are that connected and that, uh, that there was a big Rosicrucian following in this area as well as, you know, Humboldt masonry. So just loaded with secret societies around here in Northern California. <laughs> the, f- the first lodge in the United States to be named after the famous explorer was Humboldt Lodge Number no. 79, founded in Eureka, California. On June 30th, 1854, Eureka is the seat of Humboldt County, established in 1853, in the same year as Fort Humboldt, overlooking the Humboldt Bay, which received its name in 1815. 1850. At some point before 1859, a lodge was created in New Orleans, Louisiana, named Alexander von Humboldt Lodge. Its membership was apparently largely German, though it was chartered under the Grand Orient of France rather than the Grand Lodge of Louisiana. The lodge seemed to have not survived the Civil War. After the war in 1865, Humboldt Lodge Number no. 359, founded in Philadelphia, a German-speaking lodge, would go to an, erect a monument to the Prussian scientist, which is... Humboldt, uh, in 1869, the centennial of his birth. Humboldt's centennial was celebrated across the nation with extensive commemoration festivities that made his name even more popular. Indeed, Humboldt Lodge Number no. 138 was founded in February of that same year in Rochester, New York, this time by another fraternal group, the Independent Order of the Odd Fellows, which shared similar structures and precepts with Freemasonry, but whose members tended to middle and working classes. Humboldt Lodge Number no. 42 established in 18 German American Freemasons uh, was chartered the next year on May 24, 1870. One of only six organized lodges in the state of Indiana which held the ritual work in the German language. Finally, on June 12, 1901, the Humboldt Lodge Number no. 27 was chartered in Lovelock, Nevada, a the biggest place to get gold currently is Nevada. Uh, interesting to note, this was not the last lodge named for Humboldt in North America. Alexander von Humboldt Lodge was established in Mexico City and performs its ritual in the German language as well. If Alexander von Humboldt was not a Freemason, what lies behind his, behind his adoption by Freemasons, particularly those in America? If his brief time in the U.S. and his limited correspondence with Thomas Jefferson have, as James Howell contends, resulted in a disproportionate level of importance for Americans. What can explain this result and the clamor for Humboldt by Americans both then and now? Some Americans were primed to adopt Humboldt. Margaret Bayard Smith declared in a letter that an enlightened mind has already made him an American. And Humboldt reciprocated, claiming to be helped in American. Uh, Part of the answer certainly lies in his status and reputation both during and after his life. As one of the foremost scientists of his day and his international celebrity, two other related factors, though, help explain a deeper connection for both Americans and Freemasons alike. So, but why I think it's interesting is that he was connected to mines, A1 since day one. We know that Freemasons meet in caves. Um, you know, Gold is found in California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada are the biggest gold deposits that we have. Is all basically like 
Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada. I think the biggest gold mine currently active right now does sit in Nevada. I met a guy at a bus stop, literally a fucking bus stop in Ukiah, California, <laughs> this Mexican homie. And I was just like, well, you know, we're just chatting. And he's like, yeah, I'm going back to work. I'm like, where are you working? He's like, the gold mines. And I was like, what? I was like, gold mines still exist? And he was like, yeah, I get paid $70 an hour to mine gold. And he was going all the way basically to Vegas. I was like, holy shit. So, I mean, he said it sucks. He says terrible work. And I was like, yeah. But, and I was like, you don't get to take no gold. And he was like, no. And I was like, there's no way that you could just like, you know, get just like a little chunk. Like, uh oh, oh, was that in my pocket? They probably scan you, right? But 70 bucks an hour. Anyways, I think Humboldt equals gold. That's what I think, man. Right on. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I had no idea he had this whole alchemical connection. Were they uh, like these Masonic folks here? Were they in connection with, uh, you know, let's say like through letters and whatnot with other alchemists that or or was that book just comparing the, the three of them, like Robert Bacon, Francis Bacon and Humboldt? It's a good book. I, um, I, cause I just found it last night. So I got as far as I could reading it before I had to go to work. And cause like, I love Roger. I was like, what is this book? I was like, I love Roger Bacon as a character and I love alchemy. Right. Like I was just like, I was like, oh, I was creaming. And so, uh, I didn't really get, get too far into it. Um, but for the next episode, we might bring it back up, which reminds me, maybe we'll just, uh, we'll stop here or let me show you guys this though he was obsessed with magnetism where he discovered geomagnetism he was one of the fathers of mainstream science of the day basically you know all the stuff and you know the aztec society or the aztec culture and the mayan culture it's like all only what you know what we're able to find now of like archaeological ruins and then stories that the spanish and other conquistadors could tell us in the codices right like we we're like having to read between lines of like you know our intuition of what we think happened during this time what was happening in the old world with this pyramid building culture with this very clearly connected and tapped in culture um so it's just like, what were they, they knew about magnetism and physics on, a, on another type of level. So the, the people of Monte Alto carved large stone heads in addition to pot belly sculptures, many of which are strongly magnetized, suggesting that the 2000 year old culture was aware of magnetism. And to me, this suggests that California, more specifically the Northern coastal California, which was long since revered to the indigenous cultures as a sacred home of spirit is a big piece of esoteric strong held history to the Freemasons and to the secret societies. And that's like one of the things that's like kind of just being glossed over, you know, is that <clears throat> there's, there's these places that have very high levels of magnetic energy. And that's just important. Like, I don't know what it is, but they're marking it. They're syncretically finding it. 
they have been taking it over these places for a long time, you know, because we know that cathedrals and things were found with dowsing rods and you find the ley lines of the old world, you know, and you'd build a, a, cha- a chapel or a church or a cathedral on top of that and, you know, and have your rituals there. Or, you know, you go to do your spiritual practice there because you're you're just being fueled with this type of etherical energy. And so, you know, you have to read yeah. between the lines of Humboldt's work and all these old people's work, um, but just get the feeling that that you know <laughs> we were have digging to. for something deeper, right? They have to they they track all these sacred spots these with um their technologies to redirect the energy to where they want it to go Mm. and to our, um, it's, it sounds like, I mean, it just, and, um, it seems like, cause, cause on one level to gold is, um, gold is currency and gold is energy and currency is energy. So it's like, Mm -hmm. right. You know, so they, I don't know why they do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like speaking of alchemy, you know, obviously, you know, the process of like amalgamating gold is an alchemical process. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's just, it's all (laughs) all on on, on supremely esoteric roots, everything. And it's, we're all, and I think also it's important to remember that we're um, existing on many different layers and levels of reality or frequencies, vibrations, you know, like even as we're talking about this, obviously, but um, now I forgot why I said that. Oh, because, you know, what, what someone's doing on, you know, one level at one time may be a different reason for what they do in a different time on another level, but it's all the same kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's all necessary function ready to rock and ready to roll, ready to mine some gold. Uh, philosophically though, to mine the gold out of the, out of the deep trenches of our body to pull out the our chemical stone and trans <laughs> transmuted into the, the golden Phoenix. But that's all I got for now. Um, that's awesome, man. Humble. Right on. Well, I'm glad you covered a bit about Humboldt because my presentation yeah. is light on uh, Humboldt and kind of heavy on uh, Trinity County, which makes nice. up like the center of uh, the Emerald Triangle, which is interesting considering a triangle uh, already implies uh, a trinity. And we also have the Trinity River that runs through the uh, the Emerald County. So the sort of main waterway that feeds this huge forest of cannabis uh, outside of the atmospheric rivers is is this uh, Trinity River. 
which is kind of interesting the the history on how that got named but uh yeah give me a moment i'm gonna share my screen hopefully i won't uh totally collapse the obs thing usually it it doesn't follow so we're gonna try a trick here might take a moment but just bear with me here Those magnetized stone heads you were talking about, Romy, those those remind me of the Olmec heads a lot. Super, those are super cool. I've never seen those before. Yeah, I wonder if they were, were using them to like stick other stones to, or that was like how they would like they would like hold them up and roll them, or they stack them on top. They had plans to maybe finish a bunch of statues that they never got to finish, like. I don't know. It's something. It's, it's beyond coincidence that they're magnetized for sure. I was reading that they could, that they had a, a way to direct lightning onto a stone, and that would be a way to magnetize it, strongly magnetized stone. And that, that kind of goes into like using the pyramids as a weather controlling operative and, and being able to create lightning, which we did think that they did. Uh, in Egypt for making that glass, that, that Egyptian glass. All right. Yeah. Right on. There yeah. And there's also the, the, the Trinitite that's at the Trinity site in uh, New Mexico to bring it back to the Trinity. That's glass. Unless you just mentioned that and I was zoned out with the glass that's created uh, from the nuclear blast. They have some like Libyan tectite that they found in the desert and, uh, in the the Sahara Desert as well. So yeah, it's not just limited to nuclear tests, but anyways, here's the Emerald Triangle, sort of the the boundaries of of what falls in and what falls doesn't fall into it. And I was surprised to find out Mount Shasta is actually uh all the way up here in the northeast corner of Emerald Triangle. Uh, so maybe not where the majority of the cannabis action is going on. But we did already talk about a pretty infamous mountain that's located somewhere around here uh, called Murder Mountain, right? We, we covered that a bit in our first episode. But I decided, hmm, this is kind of a unique area. It's pretty rough. All of these towns, for the most part, uh, have populations of you know less than a hundred, if not in the hundreds. I mean, all of Trinity yeah. County is like I think two thousand five hundred people. Uh, Humble has a lot more because of the coast, and I think Mendocino as well is kind of small on population. So this is an interesting area, kind of. Uh, look into the history. We, we covered a lot of it. Obviously, the Native Americans were wiped out uh, around the gold rush period. And during the Civil War, they had a bunch of soldiers out here who were looking for gold to possibly fund the war effort. Right. So, you, you know, you have militias and all of these military type men coming out here and uh, you know, getting a chance to, you know, build a ranch, create a homestead. And it's interesting because California has a lot of uh, military now to this day. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to explore some of these tiny towns in the Emerald Triangle. The first town that I came across is a little town called Laytonville, California. 
And Roman actually mentioned Laytonville earlier because, as he said, this is where the Grateful Dead hangs out, and it makes sense they hang out there because that's where the Black Oak Ranch is, which is owned by the Hog Farm. That's the oldest running hippie commune in the United States, and it was founded by the peace activist known as uh, Wavy Gravy, the clown. So, yeah, kind of interesting there. Um, dude, Laytonville is so nuts, dude. Yeah? You've been there? <laughs> I've worked there. I've trimmed lots of weed in Laytonville. Okay. Wow. Right on. So, yeah, Laytonville's kind of got, I'm sure, uh, the most Emerald Triangle vibe uh, out of all the, the places that I've kind of covered, but maybe not. We'll see. Uh, Alder Point. This is where Murder Mountain happened. It also is the site of the first American civilian casualty of the United States drug war. A guy was killed. I think Chad mentioned that when we covered that. Uh, But a guy was killed on his pot farm by federal agents. And he was found, um, well, unlawfully murdered. But the guy who killed him never faced any uh, jail time. He was you know, relieved of his charges. So this was, this is kind of an interesting location. Now cannabis is legal. So, you know, you might not have federal agents out there doing that kind of thing, but obviously the gangs and, you know, the, uh, what do we call them? The, um, cartels and right. So it's still a violent place considering the amount of money. Yeah. That goes into, uh, keeping this, you know, this industry going out here. And I'm sure they are feeling a little bit strained now that all these other markets are opening up uh, and all these other places are growing cannabis. But I, I would say, you know, Emerald Triangle Bud has uh, you know, quality over quantity in their favor, you know, because this is just an ideal place to grow weed, it, it seems. And maybe it's been growing there for a long time. Who knows? But uh, we also have a place that sort of disappeared now, and that is Whiskey Town. Whiskey Town was an unincorporated community in Shasta County, California. Uh, it was once a bustling mining town until they flooded it uh, to create the dams in the 1960s and 50s, which helped. Uh, ensure that there would not be any more droughts in California. That was a big problem. So they built all these dams. And unfortunately, a place like Whiskey Town, which sounds like a cool place to go to have a drink, uh, was left underneath the lake. It's now underneath Whiskey Town Lake. But they, uh, they preserved a couple of the buildings and moved them to a different location as well as the grave, the historical grave that was there. They moved everybody uh, and reburied them somewhere else. So this is all a part of the, the Shasta Trinity National Recreation Area. Now, it's a beautiful slide. Thank you. Now, we talked a lot about gold, but a lot of other interesting uh, things have been found in the in this area, including platinum. And Platina, California is the Spanish word for uh, platinum that it, it was initially named noble station after one of the local residents and it served as one of these uh sort of stops 
on the trip for the miners as they, you know, went from the mines to wherever they stayed and wherever they drank and got supplies and whatever else they were doing. So, uh, but eventually they, some of these guys just discovered platinum and they renamed the town. Now in Platina, a very interesting, uh, very interesting place sprouted up sometime in the mid 20th century. Uh, the St. Herman of Alaska Monastery. And I'm like, who the hell's St. Herman of Alaska? I've never heard of that. And maybe that's because I grew up Catholic and we don't know much about the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, that's not a part of what we learn in uh, Catholicism. But yeah, this is a Serbian Orthodox Church located just outside of Platina. And it was founded by... Uh, Friar Herman Podmoshensky and Seraphim Rose, who was actually a uh, student at UC Berkeley. Uh, and it was blessed by then uh, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, St. John the Wonder Worker. Um, and yeah, so, so as you could see... Um, Rose was kind of a prolific author and whatnot, but this John the Wonder Worker guy, he seems like, I, I was like, who's this guy? This is interesting. <laughs> and here's a picture of him. He was a, he was a, a prominent Eastern Orthodox aesthetic and hierarch of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, who was active in the mid-20th century. He was a pastor and spiritual father of high reputation and a reputed wonder worker to whom were attributed powers of prophecy, clairvoyance, and healing. Uh, hence the name St. John the Wonder Worker. But yeah, I thought that was fascinating that he made his way from Shanghai to San Francisco. Normally it's the other way. People <laughs> got shanghai from San Francisco or better Portland, but... Yeah, um, interesting character and an interesting part of California. I don't know how much time he actually spent. It seems like he just blessed it, so maybe he only visited once. But maybe he passed over the bridge that gave the name to Bridgeville. It used to be called Robinson's Crossing until they built the bridge. And uh, this was a town that became famous in 2002 for being the first in history to be put up for auction on ebay so i don't know if this is on the 40th parallel but it would make sense if it was because you know this is a bridge into the techno world and uh what do they have now this uh well what, what do they call it the um metaverse and how they have all this land in the metaverse that people are buying well here's the first time ever that land was auctioned uh, on a digital platform here was it just the bridge no the, the town. town yeah the whole the town. town 83 acres yeah just posting up on you're just cruising looking for belt buckles one day you're like hmm yeah. Like, oh, there's a town for sale. <laughs> Not bad. Somebody got it for $700,000. That's a pretty good uh, deal. And that's other that's California good. towns have tried to do the same thing in this area, Platina being one of them that we mentioned. Uh, but all of these are in Trinity County, which is interesting. You know, like I said, uh, considering we're focusing on the Emerald Triangle, 
Uh, Trinity County has a rich history of Native Americans, the Tsnung Way, uh, including the South Fork Hoopa and uh, the Tlomita Way, uh, Shimariku and the Wintu. I probably didn't pronounce that fourth one correctly, but we'll just go with that. And it's interesting, Trinity County got the name uh, from the river, which was named by Major Pearson Redding, who was under the mistaken impression that he was all the way somewhere near South America. <laughs> he thought he was near Trinidad. Uh, he thought he was near the Caribbean. Uh, but he turns out he was in California, and that's why he named this place Trinity, as he figured he was on his way to Trinidad, which ended up not to be true. So kind of a funny way that, you know, this place got its name as Trinity and now is like this Emerald Triangle, you know, staple. And I'm sure the legend of Emerald Triangle, California, will only grow as, you know, cannabis continues to be uh, accepted in the mainstream culture. Um, but next to this... Uh, place we have the the six rivers national forest california which is a very interesting name uh six rivers i like that name and i think it's kind of interesting you, you notice the little dancing bears there well in 1947 <laughs> awesome. uh jose garcia father of uh then five years old jerry garcia died on a, a fly fishing trip and drowned and Jerry claimed to have witnessed it. But, uh, some people say that he didn't actually witness it. Maybe he was just, you know, mistaking memories from his young years. You know, many people do that, but, uh, I found it kind of interesting that this guy who, you know, was kind of like a drugged out rock legend, you know, famously, uh, intravenous drug user, you know, in the Six Rivers National Forest in the sixth year of his life sees his father pass away. I mean, I don't know. There's There might Can be I... a third six in there somewhere. But, yeah, that if that's the making of a rock legend, like I think, you know, many rock stars have a similar story like that where maybe they, they uh, you know, saw somebody in their family or close to them pass away, which, you know, is interesting, especially considering this whole area uh, has legally been uh considered or claimed uh as sacred this the native american tribes in the area um got the u.s supreme court to decide that this whole land would be considered sacred uh, under the northwest indian cemetery protective association act so yeah that's uh that's really kind of you know, again, tripling the, the interest because Grateful Dead, what does that name even symbolize itself? I mean, we are grateful to be dead. You know, it could also kind of be like a rebirth, right? You're grateful to die and, and be born again through this like ecstatic experience of doing psychedelics and listening to great music, you know, and to boot all on top of this. The first and possibly only actual footage, I consider it real footage, some people don't, uh, of a Bigfoot was recorded here in the Six Rivers National Forest, uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film. So 
yeah, tons of interesting stuff going on. Uh, and of course, President Truman uh, established this with his uh, treaty that you know granted all of these pieces of land as protected by the you know federal government. But Roman, you you wanted to jump in after I I said that thing about Garcia. I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of talk, man, about the Grateful Dead and, you know, the feds and, you know, farming the uh, psychedelic era to be a, a form of an era of like MK. Right. And like, you know, this story of Jerry Garcia's father kind of like being uh, taken from him at, at such a young age, you know. Like that's just kind of like a common story in MK victims too. So that's just, I just thought that was kind of interesting. I'm not saying that is the case, but that is the first thing that popped in my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, maybe it's not even the case that this was like uh, manufactured or, or, you know, made to happen. Maybe it's, it's the opposite where someone with a background like his is maybe mm-hmm. selected to go into like a gifted you know, mm-hmm. kids program at school that maybe skyrockets their musical talent. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that makes more sense to me. But, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, you never know, especially with the occult undertones. Again, six rivers, we got Bigfoot running around. It's sacred <laughs> land that Native Americans. Dates. What's that? I think those dates. Those dates are standing out to me too. Yeah, 1947. Right. Yeah. yeah, I Park didn't was even know. Formed in that. 1947. Wow. Joe Garcia died in 1947. Wow, I didn't like even think of that. 1947 wow. keeps coming up. Yeah, well, and I, I'm sure. And ironically, I just got a call from Roswell a few minutes ago, and I don't get it. <laughs> you did. Super you strange. put that in the chat, and I was like, yeah. "That's so crazy." Like That's a it. call from a Roswell number. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, Can we just, call them Roman live? was talking about something. I first call ever. Dude, I don't care. Yeah, Roswell number called me while Romy was talking. And now we're seeing 1947 everywhere. Damn. She yeah, gave me I, buzz. I'm, on sure, I'm sure some weird stuff has happened in 1947. I mean, the 40s were... Let's let's look that up. I think wasn't World War Two finished in in nineteen forty seven? Like altogether finished forty five? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that was forty five. You're right. I mean, I'm on the Wikipedia right now for the year nineteen forty seven. I I feel like some pretty big things happened then. Oh, the the Cold War started. Uh oh. I guess that would be the biggest thing. Yeah, the Cold War. But anyways, good good eye chad for pointing that out uh also 88 is a kind of uh significant number uh in magic uh it's got some you know kind of unfortunately racist associations with it but it's interesting there to to point out the dates 1988 um so yeah speaking of people who've passed away we have a ghost town uh, among many that california's got a bunch of ghost towns but out of the ones that I saw in, uh, in Trinity County in the Emerald Triangle, Helena, mm-hmm. California, seemed to be uh, the most interesting, at least the one with the most photos available. And yeah, it was <laughs> originally a bunch of different names. Uh, North Fork was one of them, but it was popularly known as Baghdad. 
a name given to the settlement because it was as rowdy and as bizarre as the ancient city with the same name on the Tigris River. I mean, how interesting is that? A, that the gold miners of that era would have, like, you know, running knowledge of what Baghdad was like, let alone, you know, uh, it being a bizarre city like Baghdad, right? I mean, we're, we're thinking about these people as, you know, for the most part, having Bibles, you know, but then Roman mentions the Freemasons that were in the area, and, yeah, they certainly would have been aware of the old world histories and what might have happened in a place like Baghdad. So, yeah, Baghdad, full of riches, uh, famously, you know, invaded by a bunch of different empires, including the United States Empire. So it's kind of odd that there's this place that was once called Baghdad, now Helena, which isn't Mount St. Helens, the volcano that erupted some time ago, 30, 40 years ago. So, well, actually, well, it's funny because uh, there's a few connections and I'm glad you brought this up because Helena, I'm glad it stuck out to you. Uh, we in the spirit jump off rocks that we were talking about earlier. Um, part of the big constellation was Mount St. Helena. That was like the beginning of where the spirit would start. So Mount St. Helena, which is down South, um, of Helena, Helena is like more really Northern California, almost in Oregon. But, um, if you guys remember the Siskiyou trail I brought up in the last episode, which was like where a lot of natives like were had said to lead the gold miners up the Siskiyou trail from Sacramento up to Siskiyou trail. Uh, and that's where a lot of the gold was then later mined by following the natives, Mm. but Mount St. Helena, which is South Helena, California and Mount St. Helens are all in a straight line following the Siskiyou trail. Huh? Super significant. And Helena is it's named after, uh, like an ancient Greece, uh, we could look that up really quick. It's pretty interesting where they we should, name Helena. We should, yeah, we should cover that in the next episode. Maybe do a deep dive and see if there's any like syncretism there, like a la Ross Ben or Peter Shampoo. You know, considering like Helena and the Greek goddess version of that word, and then like yes. you know what that is today, and especially how that might connect to the Native American mythology if it was a a trail, you know, it kind of reminds me of what we came across when Steven Snyder, Mike Wan, and I went down to Rose Valley and the Minkus Path went right through this really weird occulted area. The Minkus Path was like the famous trading pathway for the Susquehannocks in Pennsylvania. So, yeah, yeah, very, very significant. Good, good catch, Roman. Right on. So, yeah, Helena, uh, like the uh, eBay town, was sold, and uh, yeah, I mean for a very low price, fifty thousand dollars. I wonder if any of the property value in the places like this has gone up now that cannabis is legal. Um, who knows? Maybe you'll see like little luxury resort type places sprouting up around here. It, it, maybe there already are. I don't know. Roman probably would no better uh but here's some more photos of the ghost town and uh i think that's all i got that's all i got we got just this uh ghost town yep and that's it so 
why don't we why don't we cover that on the next uh awesome. on the next one the uh the trail what'd you call that the trail that goes the siskiyou siskiyou okay wow yeah there's like because i grew up uh in longview washington or kelso washington which is um right up the i-5 but it's i mean 10 minutes away from mount st helens we used to go there on school trips all the time mount st helens completely covered our town in ash you know like i know the whole like the whole country got covered in like a layer of ash supposedly Mm. um but mount st helens and mount st helena which are in a literal like here let me share my screen real quick i pull it up on the maps they're basically like this line here this dot is Mount St. Helens. This is Mount St. Helena. Just. And then Helena, where you were just talking about, is like, like right here about. And so it's like, it is really, it's just interesting. Yeah. It's like some sort of energetic line, you know, or magnetic storms that Humboldt was talking about. Like, who knows? But that is the Definitely. esoterica in which we seek. So I wonder if it, yeah, ties into Queen Khalifa at all. Mm, yeah, we tried looking a little bit up about Queen Khalifa in uh, one of our encyclopedias about goddesses, but uh, but no, we'll have to revisit that on the next episode. Of Esoteric America. Any final thoughts from anyone before we wrap up? I mean, we covered uh, a lot of ground, literally, on this episode. And (laughs) I feel like we kind of are pointing ourselves in different directions to go next. Like uh, San Francisco, obviously. Shasta is another place we could do some episodes on. Um, And then where you said Bohemian Grove is, I don't know if that's kind of like NorCal, the coastal area, if that's like considered a part of that or if it's more in the San Francisco area. But yeah, I, I would love to get around to cover all of that. And, you know, speaking of, of people reaching out and participating in the show, we did have a really great interview with, uh, with uh, Golden Gate Starfort Commander Casey. And uh, we're going to be putting that one out, I think, after we finish up like uh, maybe one more episode on the Emerald Triangle, maybe two, depending on the outcome of our next episode. And then from there, maybe we'll, you know, dovetail into San Francisco since that came up in that conversation, or we could dovetail into Shasta since that also came up. But I, I the reason I'm saying this here for everybody listening is if you live in those areas, you want to participate, get a Get in touch with us. Hit us up. I've gotten a couple people who have reached out. Uh, Loomis out in Hawaii said he's down to do a, a an episode with us on Hawaii in the new in you know in the near future. And then another person who I'm gonna give a shout out to right now. I just gotta get their name right when I look in my emails here. Uh, a gentleman named Brian suggested. Brian. Oh, cool. Brian's from Windsor Lock. So he was actually commenting. He had a bunch to say, so I can't read it all. Uh, But we're eventually going to come back to New England. I mean, we did cover a lot of New England very recently, but he had some thoughts on uh, Windsor Locks and Windsor, Connecticut. 
which uh, is kind of north of Hartford. So send in the messages. Let us know what you what you think, what towns you want to see us cover, what places you're from, and, and the weird stuff that you're seeing in your area. Um, there's one other person that sent me a message. I'm oh, trying to find on that. On that note, Go ahead. Uh, to all of the beautiful, amazing Connecticut listeners, I was just telling the boys the other day, it was really strange. I went into Walmart to buy a, a <laughs> quick t-shirt for the gym. I needed an oversized t-shirt to take to the gym and get all sweaty. And uh, I, there was a, there was, there was like 20 different Connecticut t-shirts. No other state t-shirts, Hawaii t-shirts and Connecticut. <laughs> it was like really strange. I, I need to go back and take was a picture. Was it really though? <laughs> saying, but I was just like, what? Yeah. It was so random and hilarious and funny, but also like not random at all. Mm. Mm. wonderful so here it is yet again another piece of the web in esoteric america indeed indeed yeah and um and we have uh, see this is why people need to email me at esoteric america podcast at gmail.com because otherwise it's just going to get lost in all my other emails so if you want to get your email read on the show or mention just make it easy on me and do it there or Instagram esoteric America. Of course we're on YouTube Rockfin, and uh, any audio podcast app. Not that you should listen to the show uh, on the apps unless you really have to, because so much of this show is visual. We really love it when people do uh, watch on the, the video side of things. So anyways, uh, Chad Roman, thank you so much. As usual, you can support both of these gentlemen. You, uh, the, their links are in the description as long or as well as mine. And, uh, and yeah, that's all I got to say for this episode. Thank you, Mark, Tara, Chad. Y'all are great. Thank you everybody. Listen, you guys are the best. Rock Thank on. you. Rock Thank you guys. <sighs> all right. <Ooh. laughs> See you guys later. Thank you for being here. And have I like this one. This is good. This is fun. Learned a lot and feel like I know you two a bit better now. Mm. Or three. <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool. Fun. Yeah, we're all getting to know each other here better and better on the tour across these esoteric Americas. Uh, get in touch with us and you can join us here on the show. Maybe the next episode. Until next time. Peace. Oh, I. Peace.